Perhaps you're familiar with the idea of a teaching hospital. I'm sure many of you are. You could call our church a teaching church. We are all about training people to be future pastors and missionaries and church planters. And one of the venues that we equip them is by allowing these future leaders the opportunity to preach. It is intentional that I do not preach every week. Intentionally, that's the way it's set up because we are equipping future generation of leaders to preach the word. And so they have an opportunity to preach the word and you will still be blessed because you get to hear the word of God. This morning, you're going to hear from our church planting resident, Jeremiah Vaught. Jeremiah has been with us for many years. Many of you know him. He is a graduate of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and is currently in the process of being trained and assessed to plant a church. He and his lovely wife, Mesa, have been married less than a year, and they make an awesome pair. And I really just appreciate, Jeremiah, everything that he has taught me over the years he has been here, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm still learning from him. So, Jeremiah, come on up here and bring us the word. Uh, for those of you that got one of these Bibles, I'm going to be preaching out First John 5, which is actually page 879. And you will want to use the Bible, uh, otherwise I will bore you, and I believe it's a sin to bore people with the Bible. But if you don't read along with me, I'm, I'm going to bore you. So please uh, make sure uh, you, you turn to page 879 or First John 5, uh, specifically 1 through 12. As I prepared to preach today, I had the opportunity, as I often do, to reflect on what it means to preach faithfully in a God-fearing, God-honoring fashion. And I think that if, I were, if I'm going to do that type of investigation, who else should I look at besides the person of Jesus? And when I, when I look at Jesus, when I see him preach in the New Testament, I see one of three reactions from the people that he preaches to. One is complete confusion. Another is that they want him dead. And another is that uh, they think that what he just said was the best news that they'd ever heard. They think that what he had just said was the best news that they had ever heard. And a lot of times when you're a teacher, you try to throw a little confusion in there to get people to ask other questions, to bring people into what you're, you're preaching. So I'm not going to try to confuse you today. But the reality is, if I were to go... Uh, and preach faithfully like Jesus in downtown Evanston, right next to Panera and Barnes Noble, and preach this message, I had to ask myself, uh, if I were preaching this message, would there be some people who wouldn't mind if I were out of the way? And would there be other people that thought, I'm glad somebody told me this. I'm glad somebody finally told me this message. And so, I'm going to pray, and I'm actually going to pray that you are the people here today that actually feel like this is the best uh, news you've ever heard, uh, for my sake and for your sake. Uh, so let's pray. God, indeed, I do ask that our, our time here together would be one where we look into your word, mind the depths of the scriptures, and realize who Jesus is, and that we would recognize what he has done for us, and find our all and all in him. 
Help me to encourage people towards that end today. I pray these things in your name. Amen. So we're in 1 John 5. I'd like to ask you to stand while I read. 1 John 5, I'm going to read 1 through 12. Again, beginning in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You may be seated. So, um, as Jason just said, um, I'm en route to planning a church in Rogers Park, neighborhood of Chicago. And Mason and I recently begun a group called the Chicago Sophists. And the Chicago Sophists is a group that basically started to invite all kinds of people from different faith backgrounds, different understandings of the world to have discussions that eventually would allow us to discuss our faith in Jesus Christ, right? And we, we've been meeting every two weeks. And the last time we met, I asked the question, if you had a superpower that would allow you to fix one world problem, what world problem would you fix? And the kicker was, I said to them, if you fix this particular problem, by fixing this problem, you want to fix many other problems along with it. You want to fix as many of the world's problems as possible by fixing this one problem. And during the midst of our discussion, uh, a few different suggestions were made, but ultimately I feel like our group landed on two main decisions. One was the alleviation of poverty, and the other was more education. Those are the two major threads that a lot of our group uh, felt like. If we could just alleviate poverty and people were not worried about being poor, a lot of evil would be removed from this world. Uh, but someone else said, well, you really, can't, you really can't expect just the alleviation of poverty to be enough. You've got to educate people on how to use their money, and so on and so on. And what I, what I was eventually leading to was the point that whatever you feel like the biggest problem is will lead to what you think the biggest victory is. So the biggest victory would be the alleviation of poverty. No People not worrying about uh, where they're going to get the next meal. People having money is a victory, right? And, uh, or people having education, understanding how to use the resources, understanding uh, basically some basic skills so they can have a job, right? That's what a victory means when you understand that. So we're trying to uh, get to the point where what is the ultimate victory in this life? What is true victory? What is your biggest problem? What is your biggest enemy? 
Now let me make this more personal for you. What is your biggest problem and what is your biggest enemy? And therefore, what would be your greatest victory in this life? Uh, if your biggest problem is self-esteem issues, depression, socioeconomic woes, if it is lack of education, if it is your church, if it is the politicians, if it's a broken economic system, then you're going to have certain victories, uh, good self-esteem, a lack of depression, uh, a happy-go-lucky lifestyle and understanding of yourself, good politicians, a good economic system. Uh, and you see how that works, right? What your, what your biggest problems are, what your biggest enemies inform what it means to have a great victory. And my point is, is this. I think our text today points this out, that we should find our greatest victories and our greatest blessings in Jesus Christ. We should find our greatest victories and our greatest blessings in Jesus Christ. And as I go through this text, I'm going to show you four enemies that Jesus defeats, four enemies that Jesus defeats, and four blessings that Jesus secures in response to those. And those blessings and those victories will be, those enemies will be coupled together, right? So let's begin. Let's jump into the text. But before we do that, I want to tell you a little bit about 1 John. I'm going to put a picture up here of a, a little spiral. Basically, this is the way 1 John works. Uh, you start out with some initial content, right? Uh, you start out with some initial content, and it kind of continues to circle around the same ideas over and over again. And every single time you add a new layer, you add something else. And we're at the outer layer of 1 John right now. We're at the end of 1 John but really, to understand the outer layer, you have to kind of sometimes go back into the inner layers and understand what's been going on before it and what certain words mean. So uh, today, we're going to be flipping back and forth through 1 John. I just want you to understand that's the reason why, because we've got to understand exactly what he's saying in, the, in this passage, and this will, you'll see what I'm doing as we go along. So 1 John 5.1, it says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So... Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This word Christ means Messiah or anointed one. Uh, the bigger idea is this uh, word in, in the history of Israel. The Messiah was the long-awaited uh, king that was going to sit on David's throne forever. Uh, there, there was an expectation that somebody would come and seize authority and power for Israel forever and sit on David's throne forever. And it says here that everyone who believes that Jesus is that guy, if he's that dude then you have been born again. If you are the person that believes that, you've been born again. Born again people believe that, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. And when I use that word born again, I'm using a Christian word, a Christian concept that Jesus alludes to when he talks to the person Nicodemus, and he says to him, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. So it's saying, you see what it's saying at this point. Go down next to verse 4. Then it says something else about those people that have been born of God. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So, Jesus is the Messiah. Believe in that. You have, you have new birth. You're born again. If you believe in that and you've been born again, then you have overcome the world because of your faith. Right? You, because, you, because you have faith. And why? It says, because in verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You overcome it because you have faith that Jesus is the Son of God. Very simple. If you want to understand victory, overcoming the world, overcoming the world means that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God. 
Well, that's interesting because what does it mean to overcome the world? I, you, can, you can have a picture of Leonardo DiCaprio up on the Titanic saying, uh, I am the king of the world. That's not, that's not what this is talking about. You, what does it mean to overcome the world? What does it mean that the person who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has overcome the world? Uh, flip back with me to chapter 2, verse 15. To understand what it means to overcome the world, you have to understand what the world is. You have to understand what the world is, is being referred what world is being referred to, what is characteristic of this world. First John two fifteen. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not of him. So very clearly, if you love the world, you're you're in some sense opposed to God. Well, tell me more about the world, Jeremiah. Okay, let's go. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. What is essentially meant by the world is a realm and a place where people live in rebellion against God. They live a life of godlessness, and that's enemy number one, our godlessness. Jesus defeats our godlessness. He has come so that we may overcome the world, characterized by our rebellion against the loving God who created us, the God who is merciful and benevolent and reaches out to us over and over again, yet we live in rebellion against this same God, and we're told that those who have faith in Jesus Christ have victory over this godlessness. This is our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is our rebellion against the almighty God of the universe, the one who is good and loving. That is our biggest problem. But we need to understand also not only what our victory is, our enemy is our godlessness, but how does Jesus win victory over it? Turn, uh, turn to also chapter 3, verse 4. It says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So godlessness equals lawlessness. We're moving the idea of godlessness to ju- into judicial terms, right? When you are living a godless life, you are breaking the law. You're breaking the law. You're living a lo- uh, something that deserves punishment. That is the idea here. Sin is lawlessness. And then it says this about Jesus. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So God sent Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, he dies on the cross to win victory over our enemy godlessness, and he does this by securing our first blessing, God's pardon, God's pardon. Remember, we're talking about a judicial idea. You have sinned, you've broken the law, you've done wrong. Jesus Christ has taken that guilt upon himself because he lived a sinless life, and now we have God's pardon because he transferred his righteousness, his goodness, and took on our evil on the cross. And we are forgiven. The lawlessness of our, of our sins has been forgiven by Jesus Christ. How do, how do I feel about that? What, is that? what does that make you feel when you hear lawlessness? Let me, let me tell you a story about last year. Um, I, I got pulled over by some cops um, because I didn't have a light uh, my, my, one of my lights was out up front. He pulled me over and asked me why my light was out, why I hadn't got it fixed. And he also found out uh, that 
I didn't have uh, my up-to-date insurance card on my person either. And so I got a ticket for that. And some of you may already be dis- disrespecting me and thinking that, uh, you know, I'm irresponsible. Understand that was before I was married. I am a, I am a renewed man. <laughs> you know, I... So I understand. This is a mistake, but it seems very minor, right? And I actually, I did have the up-to-date insurance card. I just had left it on my desk. So I had to go out to some southwest suburb that I don't think I could ever find again to court because I was at a, going, uh, going to a wedding in the southwest suburbs when I got pulled over. And while at my court date, it was incredible because I was sitting there in court. And worst case scenario, they give me some uh, court fee for 50 or $75. But the whole time, I'm just sitting there trembling and have a, a, a lump in my throat thinking, what's the judge going to do? What is the judge going to do to me right now? What, what is the, what's going to be my penalty? And no matter how many times I said, the worst thing that could happen is you pay $75 and leave here. I still was nervous. I was shaking. And uh, I eventually got to go forward, and I, I got to hand to the attorney my, the proof that I'd had insurance at the time. And the judge said, okay, you're free to go. And I literally went skipping out of that courtroom. <laughs> all because I had avoided a $75 fee. How much more should we be thankful that we've been forgiven a debt and a lawless act much worse, infinitely worse, than not having insurance on, your, on my person We rebelled against the God of the universe, and he is the ultimate judge. But because of Jesus Christ, we don't have to worry about what the judge is going to say. We don't have to worry. We don't have to tremble. We don't have to be nervous. And we look at the scriptures time in, time out, and our hearts aren't filled with thanksgiving because we don't realize the depth of our evil, and we don't realize what Jesus has freed us from. He has freed you from the payment of sin. Jesus has defeated your greatest enemy, godlessness, and he's given you God's pardon. You have been pardoned. Hallelujah. We'll look back in chapter 5 to find enemy number 2. It says in verse 1 again, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And it says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Up until this point, 1 John has even told people, don't hate your brother. Don't commit evil against your your brother. There's an assumption in the whole book of 1 John. We've got a love problem. We've got a problem with being loving. We have what you call loveless tendencies. Enemy number two. Loveless tendencies. We are broken and corrupted. And we need to be told how to love people better. We need to understand what it means to be more loving to other people. And I'm going to make a very controversial statement, but give me the opportunity to prove it today. The most loving thing you can do for another person is to love God in Jesus Christ. The most loving thing that you can do for another person is to love God in Jesus Christ. Brian Lair a few weeks ago said, if you love God, you must love the church. I'm kind of reversing this and saying, if you really want to love people well, you have got to love God. Let me take the opportunity to kind of prove that and show you how that works. It says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep 
His commandments. So I don't want to keep love of God in the abstract. Part of what it means, and again, First John has been hitting this over and over again, uh, what it means to love is to keep God's commandments. So this is how this works. Let's, work, let's break it down into how, this, how loving God helps me to love my enemies better and how it helps me to love my friends better. First, let's start with your enemies. If I love God and obey his commandments, Jesus says, pray for your enemies and those who persecute you, forgive them. And those who do evil against you, uh, let it pass. Do not hold that against them. When you see Jesus Christ's commands to love those, and even it says in Matthew to forgive those who have sinned against you more times than you can imagine because you've been repaid a debt that you cannot, you've been paid a debt that you cannot repay ever, and then you are told to forgive people over and over again, up to 490 times and beyond. Jesus is saying to you, you must forgive your enemies. You must understand what it means to forgive your enemies. And so if I'm going to obey God, that means I'm going to love them. That means I'm going to love them. The most loving thing you can do for an enemy is to love Jesus Christ. The most loving thing you can do for an enemy is to love Jesus Christ because he will not let you stay angry with someone. Someone insults you, I'm going to get them. I'm going to let them know exactly what they did to me was wrong. And then you go back to the word. And then you go back to Jesus and you're like, I know he won't let me stay here. I know he won't let me stay angry. I've got to ask for forgiveness. I've got to go have this conversation. So you see how that works with enemies. What about with friends? Uh, for me, the best marital advice I received by a friend who lives in, Boulder, lives in Boulder, Colorado right now, he said, talk more to God about your wife than you do uh, to your wife about God. Talk more to, your, uh, to God about your wife than you do to your wife about God. Simply put, be praying for your wife. Be praying for those in, in your immediate context. Pray for them to God. Seek their favor. Because at the end of the day, I can tell, I can tell my wife all sorts of things about what she should do. And, da, 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 da. and she may or may not listen. But if God convicts her heart, if God convicts her heart, and also I can pray, I can say, hey, I want, I want my wife to get into a school or I want her to have, have these blessings. Who can give them better than anyone else? The most loving thing I can do for my wife is to pray. Parents, what your children need is your godly example. The best thing you can give your child is to show them love for Jesus Christ because that's the, that is what will lead them straight to Jesus. The best thing you can offer your children is to love Jesus Christ. They will see that and they'll want exactly what you have. Even, even given all the difficulties of parenting, the best thing you can do, simply put, is to love God. Friends, the best thing you can do is not to be cool and be accessible and all, all these sorts of extra things that we expect. Uh, you know, be, be a listening ear. These are, these are very positive things. But the best thing you can do is to be a godly person, someone who would give wise counsel, who would be connected to God, such that they could trust that some of the words that you're saying to them and some of the care that you have for them is directly from the God of the universe. That's the best thing you can give. As a preacher, when I come up here, the best thing I can do for you today, the best thing I could do for you today was to be on fire for God, to love Him completely, and to let this, what I do up here today, be an outpouring of what God has done in my life. If you want to love God, if you want to love people well, you must love God. The best thing you can do for people is to love the Lord of the universe. And that victory is that, that, loveless, that lovelessness tendency that you have is overcome is overcome by the love that God gives. That's the ble second blessing that you have. The blessing that you have is the love God gives. 
Enemy number three. I want to reread verse four. It says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. Now I want to again turn back uh, to chapter 3, verse 5. And talking about Jesus again, it says that, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So it says that Jesus came to take away sins. This is the idea. That's what Jesus came to do. But verse 8 tells us something else that he came to do. It says in verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And it says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What it means for Jesus to overcome the world, what it means for you to overcome the world, is that Jesus Christ came not only to conquer sin, but he also came to destroy the person who loves it when we sin. The one that many of us Westerners don't really believe in very often, practically speaking, the devil, Satan, our tempter, the one who seeks our destruction. Jesus came to destroy his power. Jesus came to destroy the power of the devil. That is the third enemy. And Jesus, on the cross, not only conquered our sin, but he also conquered the one who causes and encourages sin in this world. He is the one who loves the sin of this world, and he has defeated him on the cross. Now, what is the blessing that Jesus secures that that helps us to overcome the power of the devil still today? Turn back again to chapter 5, verse 6. I'm going to read all the way down to chapter 10. I mean, excuse me, verse 10. And uh, you see, this is, uh, we're bouncing around 1 John because it's very interconnected. Everything's interconnected. 1 John 5, 6. We're looking for the blessing that Jesus secures to defeat the enemy that he's already defeated in our lives, the devil. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. This is how this works. Uh, in this time in the Roman world, people, if I were, if I were to be accused of stealing something, a, a judge wouldn't hear my, your accusation against me unless you had three witnesses. Uh, two witnesses weren't enough because uh, there could be a plan, uh, that, that there could be a collaboration to basically make a lie against me, right? So the idea is he's getting ready to set up here. He's going to show that there are three witnesses that prove that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the physical Son of God, but he was also truly God. And he says that there are three that testify to this. One is the water. One is the water. And that water means, to John, it means baptism. At Jesus' baptism, God opened up the skies and said, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And he sent the Holy Spirit down in dove form. And that's a testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was there. So the water testifies Jesus is the Son of God. 
Also, the blood testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. On the cross, like I've talked to you about, the blood secures our part and our forgiveness of sin. And only one perfect person could do that, and that was the Son of God. Jesus Christ came, he lived that life full of God's power, full of the Holy Spirit, and he lived as full God, full man. And on the cross, he secured our part, and he secured through his blood the testimony that he is the Christ, he is the Son of God. He was fully man, and only a man could give us forgiveness. So the water and the blood testify. Now also the Spirit, because the Spirit is the truth, testifies. And where does the Spirit testify? Again, let's look at verse 10. It says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. So this testimony, and we see also above that the Holy Spirit is the one that testifies. We have this testimony within us. So you've got the water, you've got the blood. These are external. And then we have the Holy Spirit testifying to our hearts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So you have three witnesses. And you also have the third blessing. You also have the whole third blessing. You have in Satan a great adversary, but in the Holy Spirit you have an even greater ally. You have an even greater ally. In 1 John 4, it's in 1 John 4, chapter, uh, verse 4, it says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, the devil. The devil has been defeated at the cross, and now you have no excuses. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than Satan in this world. Satan certainly has influence. He has sway. But Satan can only work with raw material, specifically your own simple tendencies, your own habits. Satan can only work with what you're giving him. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than Satan. So you have no more excuses for those of you that want to obey God, you have access to a spirit that testifies that Jesus is Lord, but also is more powerful than Satan, is more powerful in securing victory for you than our greatest adversary uh, that is a person, Satan himself. You have a secure victory in the Holy Spirit. Lastly, I want to look at the fourth enemy that Jesus defeats in verse 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Very simply put, we die, right? All of us are going to die someday. We're mortal. Our fourth enemy is mortality. You're going to face it and there are all kinds of different paths that we take, but all of it leads to death. It is our last enemy that Jesus defeats. And we see that he gives us rich immortality. And the Apostle Paul says, Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? Jesus Christ has secured victory over the grave, and he's given us rich immortality. I emphasize the word rich because you look here and you see that this life this eternal life that it talks about is in the Son. That is rich. That is, you can experience a foretaste of this eternal life even now because you can have the Son of God dwelling in you. Jesus Christ gives you rich immortality. It's not just a, a, an ever go, ongoing existence of uh, a begrudging life 
of difficulties. It is rich life. Jesus Christ secures for us rich immortality. And he did this on the cross. He gives us eternal life, rich eternal life. Four enemies defeated, our godlessness, our, our selfish tendencies, our, our loveless tendencies, the devil, our great adversary, and lastly, our mortality. And you see those, you see those enemies defeated, and you see the blessings that come with it, the pardon of God, uh, a love-filled heart for other people through Jesus Christ. You see the Holy Spirit, and you see rich immortality. But the irony of this sermon up to this point is that we really haven't talked a lot about how these victories and these blessings were secured. These incredible victories that we have, these blessings that we secured, came because someone was completely defeated, because someone was completely cursed. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ secures for us victories and blessings by taking everything that we did not need, want or could not take. He gives us victory by having complete and utter defeat on the cross. And he gives us blessings by seeming forsaken. He lived a perfect life and took our godlessness so he could give us the God-fearing, God-obedient life that he had perfectly lived. He lived a, lo- a life characterized by love, completely loving, even up until the death. Even on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know what, not what they do. <laughs> and he gives us and he gives us a heart that helps, us, that helps to love other people. He obeyed the Holy Spirit and did not succumb to the devil's temptations while on this earth, either uh, in the wilderness or even all the time up, in, up until the point of the cross. He perfectly obeyed the Father and perfectly obeyed the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave up the eternal life that he had at the Father's right hand and came down, took on mortality so that we could have immortality. Your greatest victories were bought with Jesus' great punishment. And my question, will you rest in the blessings that Jesus has secured for you? He gave up so many blessings to secure these victories, these victories and these blessings that were so important to him, so vital to him. He gave up. What would it look like for you to rest in the victories of Jesus and the blessings of Jesus recognizing that they're more important than any other victory or blessing that you might be able to get. I want to talk a little bit about someone that I, I feel, when I look at this person and when I, when I see this person, um, when I saw this person, I saw someone who understood this concept. It was my uh, great-aunt Furl, uh, F-U-R-E-L. Furl... Uh, in the world's eyes, would not be considered great. She never graduated high school. She was five foot nothing, a hundred and nothing. And she worked at a factory her entire life. She desperately wanted to be married and have children. She never did. She was single her whole, her whole life and died without children. But her, like my grandfather reminded me, she did so without ever envying those who had what she wanted so desperately. She didn't have fame, even in that little neck of the woods that we lived in. And in fact, she never even really traveled outside of our state very much at all. Uh, in fact, she can count, even though we lived 
30 minutes from Georgia and Tennessee, she could remember the times that she had left the state. She could remember how often she had left the state, and she had none of the world's riches. And when you folks hear this story, you may be encouraged, but in your hearts and minds you think, man, that is the worst. But Ferl had a joy that was unexplainable and absolutely recognizable because she had learned to rest all of her victories and all of her blessings in what Jesus Christ has done for her, had done for her. She had understood that. Such that a few years back, in 2005, she died right before I moved up here to go to Trinity in Deerfield. I can remember meeting with her, and we would always pray together. She would always pray for members of the family. She wouldn't even say their names because she didn't, wanna, she didn't want to insult them or wouldn't want, didn't want to gossip about them at all. And she would always pray for them. And she would be praying for them even though she was dying of cancer. And I can remember at one point she said something to me. It was the only time I ever remember her being even weak with me because I was her great nephew. And I don't think she really wanted to show that. She said to me, sometimes, Jeremiah, I just don't understand why God would put me through this. It hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. But then she looked at me and said, but I know that Jesus loved me, and I know he loved me because he went through way worse than I'm going through now. He endured much worse suffering than I'm enduring now. And that heart, that attitude of resting in God's victories and blessings that she had resulted in, at her funeral, the message was preached. My uncle, who was her, uh, her brother, said she would have one word spoken at her funeral, and that was the name Jesus and then afterwards, we broke out into about a two-hour worship service of singing hymns that Pearl would have liked. She had her victory in Jesus Christ, and other victories came that were much more valuable. I, I am a result of Pearl Lunsford resting in the victories and blessings of Jesus Christ and the prayers that she offered up countless times for me. What would it mean and what would it look like for you to rest in the blessings and victories of Jesus Christ. Jesus, he had victory in his sight, the resurrection. And that same resurrection, we get to join God in. And that was enough for him to endure all kinds of losses and all kinds of curses on this earth. Will it be enough for you? Let's pray. Father, I do ask right now that as we have time to reflect and pause and consider your cross and your resurrection, I pray that we would be moved to obedience. I pray that we would be moved to love for you and trust in you in the midst of sufferings and difficulties, and that we would, we would rest and your victories that you've won for us and our blessings, even in the midst of all kinds of other failures to receive victory in this life, what other people see as success. Father, I grant that our hearts would be moved by your word today, that we would trust you, and that especially we would look to Christ and trust you even more. I pray these things in your name. Amen.